Blackwater, The Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, The Flying Tigers, The Swiss Guard, The White Company, The Knights Templar, The Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, Guns for Hire, Soldiers of Fortune, Private Military Companies, Private Security Contractors, Dirty Deeds, done not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time, and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. And like it or not, wars are good, very good for business. Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means. So choose the red pill, remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington State. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone, or as some call it, an austere or a non-permissive environment. Well, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good and some not so good. All in all though, private security contractors is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region, or the Middle East North Africa region. Lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones and the ancient ones. Myths, legends, folklore, maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region. That's right, the Mediterranean. And you probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. So, take the red pill and brace for impact. Okay, everybody. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Conan. The contractor's life. So in this episode, I think I'm going to uh, journey back to where I left off last season, on or about uh, one of the last episodes. I think there were a few episodes that came later, but uh, anyway, we'll go back to Afghanistan and continue this journey forward. Uh, I believe at that time I was in the Jalalabad area, uh, also known to some many that were there and others that weren't that paid attention to the news known as the Nangarhar province okay it's so it's it was mostly in the east slightly northeast but eastern part of Afghanistan um, and it's where you know arguably a lot of stuff uh, happened anyway so you know we were there 
and we were in the Jalalabad, Jalalabad area, and uh, I believe at that time that was with uh, EODT. And I think, as I've mentioned before, my journey began with EODT uh, back in Iraq. And uh, so we're there. And like I said, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that happened there, a lot of uh, incursions, a lot of uh, attacks, a lot of uh, indirect fire, a lot of everything that happened there. Um, and when I wrapped up my time there with that company on that particular project and contract, because I've really pretty much gone through a lot of it, um, you know, and if I recall other stuff uh, with clarity, I will revisit it and and delve into it in as much detail as I can. But I mean, but pretty much it was a wash, rinse, repeat thing, uh, you know. Uh, but before I completely digress from that and move on to the next one, uh, for people that have asked, because it is still occasionally comes up, you know, our on most projects, if not all projects, actually, I mean, so what was our gear, our wear, uniform, this, that, one thing, another, okay, uh, basically 5.11 stuff. Um, there were times on some projects when I could wear blue jeans, but for the most part, it's 5.11s or some such type trouser, and uh, even though there were times you wanted to wear blue jeans or other things, just that kind of a trouser made a lot of sense because there was a lot of pockets, a lot of places to store stuff. And sometimes there were days, weeks, maybe even months when you really didn't need anything more than the few pockets you had in, say, a pair of blue jeans. But for the most part, there, you know, those extra pockets came in handy for a variety of reasons. Same thing with the 511 shirts. Short sleeve, long sleeve, you know, everybody had their preference. Um, I had them both, but typically I wore the long sleeve primarily for the protection from the sun and then just, you know, the uh, elements there, sand, dust, one thing, another. Uh, and I typically wore Under Armour. And again, uh, up top, it was the long sleeve version. Uh, again, for that extra layer of protection, not only for uh, cooling, uh, sweating, you know, perspiration, whatever you want to call it, uh, but on those occasions when maybe I didn't have my 5'11 shirt on, I could throw a T-shirt over it, but I'd still was, had the protection from the sun and the other elements. Uh, hiking boots, hiking shoes, you know, uh, some guys would call it uh, military boots or work boots. Uh, for the most part, it was, you know, uh, your own personal preference. You know, what felt good, what fit you, um, and provided the protection that you needed from you know, generally all around elements. So I typically wore hiking boots once in a while. There would be hiking shoots, but I found that the boots, and when I say boots, I mean, they're like, you know, we would call them half boots or three quarter boots, usually up around the ankles um, because you wanted that good ankle support in your, in your, in your footwear. So some guys wore full length boots, you know, that came up around the calves or near the calves. And others, like me, wore the three-quarter or half boot, and then others wore the shoes. But, uh, you know, again, regardless, we all had our reasons why we wanted the shoe or the half boot or the full boot or whatever. So those kinds of things. Sunglasses, I mean, again, the brand just varied. You know, it was, again, it was your preference. Um, the only quote-unquote requirement behind them is that they should be um, and I think for a time it was actually required. In fact, it was a requirement, even though um, sometimes you could tell guys weren't following that requirement. Uh, it had to have the, the ANSI standard, uh, 
for uh, ballistic protection. And, and as I've said before, when I when I talk about ballistic protection, uh, not only for sunglasses, but sometimes other apparel, which I'll, I'll hearken to in a moment, uh, we're really not talking about bullet protection, okay? Uh sunglasses are not going to it doesn't matter what the ANSI protect, uh, protection uh, standard is it's not going to stop a bullet although there were uh, I forget the exact brand but they, the 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 model of it was the saw um, they were kind of an awkward boxy type sunglass that according to the material that accompanied accompanied the sunglasses it could stop a 22 Magnum as well as I forget. I want to say it was 12, 12 gauge type. I don't remember if it was double lot uh, shotgun pellets. Uh, now, what <laughs> in practical reality, what that would feel like and how it would actually work out if it was on your face and that went into it. Uh, you know, would they fly off your face and, and would you have a big black eye? But would it save the eye? I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, I've never heard of anybody um, actually wearing a pair of sunglasses that, where it stopped a bullet um, or a shotgun shell. Uh, you know, the, uh, the the steel projectile, the balls coming at you. Certainly not from any close distance. Uh, so, I mean, as, so as terms of sunglasses, that was pretty much the thing. I mean, just, just go down the list. I mean, if you can think of the brand, people were wearing them. From Maui Jim to Oakley, to Ray-Ban, uh, you know, and, and all the other brands escaped me because I wore some of them as well. I wore a lot of, I went through a lot of different brands, just like I did with with gloves, footwear, until you find one or two, maybe three that really work really well for you because, you know, they make seasonal and yearly changes. And what was a fabulous product that you're wearing now that you bought three months ago or 12 months ago, you go back to buy another pair and it's like they're not available. And the one that's replaced it, you go, yeah, <laughs> not what I'm looking for. Why did you guys do this? Why did you have to ruin what was otherwise a fantabulous piece of kit? Anyway, um, so in terms of, uh, you know, headwear, uh, there were times when it was quote unquote a requirement or even a requirement to wear a hard hat. And by that, I mean a shell, you know, um, um, Kevlar helmet and again whether you got it from say supply um, the company maybe had that stuff and and maybe they got it from the military as as holdovers maybe they had purchased it brand new from a supplier or you go out and buy your own but oftentimes there was no requirement to actually have it on while you were working um, even though it was Highly encouraged, especially if you were traveling. <laughs> okay. Um, but a lot of times I did not wear it. There were times I did, but a lot of times I didn't. So what do you wear? Well, a baseball cap of some sort, you know, or baseball style cap. Um, and typically uh, we would wear some sort of what we call a contractor's cap, which is the same thing. It's a baseball style cap that has Velcro typically up front and on the back where you can put uh, the company patch and then say like an American flag. And again, depending on the area you're working in, uh, the American flag would be an IR type flag. In other words, you would have IR properties in the material 
so that, say, a drone or an American helicopter or an Allied helicopter flying over, especially, you know, low light visibility, darkness, whatever, if they were curious to know before they pull the trigger, they would kick on the IR and they would go, oh, yeah, that's an American flag. Let's get some, <laughs> let's talk to somebody before we pull the trigger. Uh, so those sorts of things. In terms of uh, did we have to or was it required to wear a backpack? No. Uh, sometimes we did. Usually we didn't. Uh, a lot of us would take it with us when we're going from point A to B and C and D. Uh, but we would drop it and put it somewhere strategically, for lack of a better term, uh, where we could get to it if we needed it because it had stuff in there that we might need, whether it was, you know, change of clothing or gear or kit, stuff that for whatever reason couldn't or we just did, couldn't fit, wouldn't fit on the rest of our kit or we just didn't want it there um, because it was too much, you know, the extra weight, this, that, one thing, another. Uh, but then we'd have the, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the vest. So we would carry everything on what is otherwise known as a plate carrier, okay? And there was, again, probably no shortage of the variety of plate carriers that were available and that you would see people wearing. And what you wore generally uh, was, again, you know, your preference. So you could get it, quote unquote, for free from the company that you worked for, or you could go out and buy your own. Uh, some companies wanted you to stick with theirs, but for the most part, again, it was whatever you preferred, as long as it could accommodate what most reasonable people out there in the field considered to be the necessary stuff, you know, that you had the storage space for the necessary stuff. Necessary stuff. What is that? Well, magazines for your rifle. Maybe extra uh, uh, magazines for your pistol. Uh, a compartment for the radio. Maybe a, a clip-on or stowage space somewhere on that for your, your tourniquets. Maybe a spot where you could attach or latch on your blowout kit or your IFAC, you know, for, uh, or another one is, you know, your first aid kit. So, I mean, there were certain things. And then, of course, you wanted, ideally, to have pouches inside or built into the, your kit so that you could put your steel plates. Now, whether it was level 3, 3A, 4, standalone, whatever. Uh, my favorite, of course, uh, was the standalone level four uh, hard ox steel plates that we wore there in Afghanistan uh, when we did wear our kit, stuff like that. Uh, it was heavy. You know, they were roughly 25 pounds, maybe 30 pounds each. Uh, but, you know, along with everything else, that means you're carrying a lot of weight. But again, if you're fit, it's not a big deal. If you're not fit, well, you're going to get fit pretty quick. <laughs> okay. Uh, so other things, you know, I mean, that, that pretty much sums up, you know, what it was like. Um, like I said, for the most part, on most of these contracts, it was big boy rules. Okay. Uh, they had, you know, st you know, stuff that they would send out to you before you deployed, you know, stuff that's required. And usually that was a fairly small list, short list. Stuff that was uh, really good to have or good to have. And then, and that was... That could usually be a fairly long list. Um, and then there was another list that was somewhere between the long list and the short list, but usually fairly short as well as stuff that uh, not needed, but, you know, something to think about. And those lists could entail everything from 
oh, I don't know, entertainment platforms, you know, in your downtime. So that you got something to do. So you're not just going stir crazy, staring at the hills and the mountains and staring at the sky and wrapping your fingers on the table trying to figure out what do I do. Okay. Um, so, but, you know, and that was, that was pretty much the case in, in any of the countries uh, and pretty much the case on any of the contracts. And guys that have worked the various contracts on the d- different mission projects know that sometimes um, companies, for whatever reason, whoever's sourcing and putting the material out when they send it to you before you deploy, it makes it sound like it's a whole lot more than it really is. And that's not to say that that company doesn't somewhere on that project maybe have everything they're talking about. But what are your chances that you're going to be involved in it or engaged in it or be a part of it? Well, it really just depends. Typically, you're going to be notified if that's the case. Uh, but things can change, and especially as the years went on. Sometimes you get there uh, because part of the vetting process is once you get there. They get eyes on you. They talk with you. They watch you for a few days or a few weeks. And they say, ah, you know what? He might do. Let's see if he's interested in doing this. Uh, So your assignment when you get in country could change sooner or later uh, based on needs and their summation of what they, you know, what, what they think of you when you're there on the ground in country. Now, once they get to know you, you know, your, after your first deployment, you go back to your second, third, fourth time that, you know, they only get to know you better, but they pretty much know you. So there we are, Jalalabad region, like I said, pretty much wash, rinse, repeat. Um, again, uh, as stuff that I recollect comes back to me with any clarity, I'll come back to it because there were some exciting moments for lack of a better term. Uh, I've talked about some of them arguably a lot of them but so from there you know i went home i don't remember a month or two it might have been three months by the time i hit the ground on the next project uh, and at that time i uh, i was really scratching my head trying to figure out do i even want to go back i don't again i don't remember how it worked out um but i my next one was with uh Torres, as I recall, it was with. So I went from EODT there in Afghanistan. I went back to Iraq with Torres, and I think I talked about that at some length. Uh, you know, there there were some, again some exciting moments there in the Baghdad area. Um, again, on that particular project, we were based over there by what was uh, the original U.S. Embassy in that big tall building. Uh, kind of a you know tall square building uh, over there by the police area the or what um, the Afghan or I'm sorry the Iraq National Police or INP whatever you want to call it where their training recruiting stuff was for the initial recruits so I mean again like I said I've talked about that uh, and you know there's 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 plenty more I could talk about that and I will again I'll get back to that uh, again as I draw this stuff out with some clarity. And I may just have to sit down and think about this stuff and, and sketch it out so that I, you know, it sounds coherent. I'm not just jumping around. Uh, but from there, uh, toward the end of that year, I believe that was 2011, uh, it was, I had committed to a full year. <laughs> and that was one of the things that the guy who recruited me, again, one of the family members, executives for the company, you know, 
wanted me to guarantee him a year. And I assured him a year. And, and I actually fully intended to stay there for a year, maybe even longer. Things were going well for me. I was doing well. I enjoyed it. Met a lot of really good people across entities, private, public, quasi, whatever, both from Americas and, you know, other nationalities, other countries. And I had, I was doing well. I really was. There was really no good reason for me to leave. But then the WPS thing came along. <laughs> and uh, I had been looking at that, eyeballing it since my time uh, in in the southern Iraq region of Nazaria when I was with EODT. Um, so I, I, I bid on that. It worked out. I left early. Uh, again, as I think I've said before, uh, Torres was not happy. At least the leadership at the top was not happy. Um, at least the guy that I spoke with when I needed certain documentation for that program. Um, so, you know, that that was, as, as I recollect, that was my last time there in Iraq. From there, after I got on the WPS program, and as I've stated before, uh, I did resign from it. I completed everything. I did, went through everything I had to do. I went through the interview process. I got my, uh, my clearance, uh, my DOS secret clearance with those guys. Uh, that was all settled. I did resign. There were a lot of issues that, that I had time to think about and think through. They changed the contract on us twice. Um, you know, had to go back and do the instruction and training again with those guys. All right, not a big deal. I mean, it's like the lead instructor for the company said, I mean, you know, you can't get enough training. And he's right. And I was down for it. It's like, yeah, let's do it again, man. I love that. I mean, the instruction and the training, I don't know about now, but at least back then and with the companies we went through, we didn't dig all the instructors, but it was some killer instruction and training. And it was almost nonstop. As I've said before, it was seven days a week for seven weeks straight bam with administrative and in processing out processing it was probably closer to eight weeks but so i was down for it but again there was just a lot of stuff so i took some time i resigned from that went back and i thought you know what let's go back to dod uh dod is where i started <laughs> and i found a great gig with a company called aegis and at that time, I believe it was Aegis LLC North America because Aegis Defense Services is, of course, a British firm. And in order to do business as an American firm or with DOD, the Department of with the U.S. government agency, you've got to have an office amongst all the other things you got to do in the United States. So they had an office, I don't remember, somewhere on the East Coast. Um, you know, and, and when I flew in for the first time with those guys, uh, to Afghanistan, as I recollect, uh, similar to EODT, these guys were in Kabul. Uh, they were a little closer. Uh, they were what some might say right there in the core area, the heartland of Kabul. Uh, and uh, met the uh, country manager at, that was a really good D dude. Uh, I liked him. And, uh, you know, it was... He was surprised. I don't know that they'd ever had anybody in the WPS program uh, with that company, at least that division with the startup of Aegis LLC. Um, and, and we talked about that. And uh, anyway, long story short, uh, made it 
is there, I think they called it the new Kabul Center. It wasn't the new Kabul Center at that time. I forget what they actually called it, where I was at for the three days or so before I went further, over, before I actually went to, I believe it was uh, Bagram at the time with those guys. Um, so, I, I'll come, you know, again, I'll come back and, and I'll wrap this stuff up and, and, you know, and try to make a, a coherent thread out of it. But, you know, the, the thing is that I'm trying to get at here with, with Mo is that, you know, contracting was changing uh, during those times. And it didn't really flesh out completely till some would say between 2013 and 2015 um, when, when everything was noticeably changing or changed. Um, some things had, but everything else was kind of changing. Um, at least with the DOD, depending on the project you were actually attached to, um, it kind of felt like it used to earlier on. Um, so with that said, uh, the contractor's life, I mean, it is, it is, it's, it's a game, if you will, for lack of a better term, for big boys and big girls. It should have been, but I mean, again, as I've said before, people slip through the cracks and arguably at some point, and maybe to this day, I still occasionally hear it, you know, more people slip through the cracks than they should be slipping through. Kind of like what guys complain about here in the States. They see it's, you know, it's what we call the FBI syndrome or the friends, brothers, and in-laws. You know, in other words, you're hooked up, you're connected, you get the in, you get the job, you get the shot, you get your foot in the door because you know somebody that likes you or you know somebody who knows somebody. Uh, you're not necessarily qualified, and if you are, you're not necessarily the best qualification for this position or for that job. So we saw a lot of that. We see a lot of it here in the States, and a lot of us are saying, you know what, <laughs> we're done, we're tired, we're going to move on and do our own thing. And uh, so I can't really hearken on any of that right now. <laughs> um, but there's stuff brewing. There's stuff going on, folks. So with that said, I want to thank you and thank everyone for taking time out of your day, your afternoon, or your evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting overseas as well as, or OCONUS, as well as some of my experiences as a private security contractor overseas, as well as here in the States. Thank you to my wife, for whom I owe immeasurable gratitude. Thank you to my family, my friends, and all the people, male and female, who have been and still are a part of my life. Remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by being aware and staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. Oconus the Contractor's Life extends a special thank you to music composer Kava Cohen and to Colin Perry of Ninja Tracks for allowing Oconus the Contractor's Life the use of Kava's song, Heavy Clutch, from the music soundtrack to the game Forza Motorsport 7. And also, a big thank you to Andres Rodriguez, who can be found at the Fiverr website for his excellent original music scores.